This week's episode of Innovators is brought to you by the Future of Work Initiative, powered by Microsoft. Embark on the next step of your digital transformation at futurelu.com. Flyover Futures Innovators podcast dedicated this season to having sit-down conversations with folks in flyover country who are having a huge impact in the world of data. Coming up on this episode. You have now a couple times taken what would feel to be a pretty substantial professional risk. I think you've got to be a little comfortable with culture shock, which is something that's really defined my life. You know, I, I grew up in rural western Kentucky and then went to the East Coast for a school and having never really been outside of Kentucky before. And um, so I just sort of got comfortable with being uncomfortable. That and a whole lot more headed your way next. Buckle up. Let's do this thing. Welcome to another edition of Flyover Futures Innovators Podcast. I am your producer, Brian Eichenberger. We've got Ben Reno Weber. How are you, man? Doing all right. Who do we have with us today, my friend? Um, I am so pumped that we have Rebecca Brown-Rice, who is currently working with the Louisville Healthcare CEO Council uh, and is one of the rock stars uh, in terms of data innovation, particularly in the health space. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Can I ask how you define a rock star in data innovation? It's like, a, you know, you are the tallest villager in Willow for those <laughs> 80s kids. <laughs> So what he's saying is you're the most outgoing person among a lot of people who are not super you are un- <laughs> untrue. I was you were so when we started conceiving this podcast, you were one of the absolute first people I thought of. Oh, well, that's very flattering. Thank you. And I look forward to diving into some of the stuff that you know, you've been working on lately. But before we do anything, I just want to kick off. What is the coolest thing in data and AI right now? that you are, have heard about, whether or not you're doing it? What's the coolest thing that's on your mind right now? Well, I, as you know, I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist by background. So even though I've been out of the field for a while, I keep up with the some odds and ends that just still fascinate me. And um, some of the work I did early on in my career was on C. elegance. It's a nematode, tiny worm. Um, and there's this project called the Open Worm Project. And it's sort of, you can think about one approach to artificial intelligence is kind of building it based on uh, real intelligence, right? Real organism brain and how it's designed, how it's built. And so um, there's this, it's an open source international project to sort of understand how neurons of an, a real life organism work together. And so... Um, the, the worm is really useful for this as a system because your brain, Ben, has you know, 90 billion neurons or so, um, the worm only has about 300. And we know where all of them um, connect to each other and we know how they talk to each other. And so they've actually built, uh, the, the, the folks who, who um, run this project, a sort of a Lego robot that's driven by the actual nervous system of uh, the worm. And <laughs> although it's kind of a unique path to understanding and uh, you know, building an artificially intelligent system—it's—it's it's really interesting. 
I mean, it, so no one who's listening can see Brian in my faces, but we're we're both like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went through a phase a few years ago where I quote unquote got really into neuroscience, and by got really into neuroscience, I mean I read like three books. It sounds like you are a little more into neuroscience than I ever got for sure. <laughs> well, neuroscience is really broad, and it has something for everyone in it. You could be over in uh, my little end, which is uh, you know looking at simple systems to understand genes and molecular pathways, all the way up to you know rodent behavior, primate behavior, human behavior, um, human digital interfaces. It encapsulates everything. Um, it, it really is is you know something for everyone there. Um, but this little robot will respond to sensory stimuli with with motor outputs and it's just kind of cool to watch it tool around you can look it up on youtube uh for sure we'll do that and we'll put it in the notes so flipping over to what you're doing right now what is the coolest thing you're working on right now oh it's something that you know a lot about ben with the lhcc um the Louisville healthcare ceo council and it's been in the works since i joined about two years ago, and I'm excited to see how it's evolved. The CEOs of some really big healthcare companies, influential ones whose headquarters are here in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, you know, got together and decided that they want to leverage the strength we have, especially in the aging innovation space. And they identified, and this was, you know, over a year ago, some very big challenges in healthcare that are bigger than really the scope of any one single company. And these are companies like Humana, Kindred, Trilogy, Signature, um, payers, providers across the entire continuum. And these are heavy hitters. They basically laid out a roadmap for us that started with addressing and supporting informal caregivers who provide so, you know, half, $500 billion worth of unpaid care every year to their loved ones. So that's what we focused on in 2019. And uh, it could not have been more prescient, but this year in 2020, they chose uh, social determinants of health, which your listeners probably know are all those um, sort of non-medical contributors to someone's health. Things like access to transportation, your access to social support, um, and your access to healthcare. With that roadmap, we put together a call, a global call for innovations and chose a slice that really became important during the pandemic, which is social isolation and loneliness with the goal to deploy a fascinating technology in defined Louisville communities, measure that data, which is the real crux of, of this whole project across the continuum of care centralize that collection and make sure that we are controlling for as much as possible. That's the scientist in me really gets excited. How can we take this complicated system and, and make it a little less complicated so we can gather meaningful results, see what we get. Can we move the needle? Can we address loneliness and social isolation? Um, and two, does solving that for people help them feel better, be healthier, and lower healthcare costs. So that's my life right now. I'm in the weeds of it, um, but it, it is exciting. It's really exciting to see it come together. Part of what I love about that is you've identified something that is a business problem, a community problem, and a data problem. Yeah. You've been doing these things that I might get this wrong. They're called discovery labs. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's such an interesting starting point for uh, an organization to understand what's going on in their universe from a data perspective. 
Well, it was really a necessary first step because at LRCC, our, our real asset are these engaged CEOs, these healthcare leaders who want to solve these big problems. And understanding challenges around a very narrow slice of healthcare in one member company and then looking across the entire council, so across the continuum of care, is where the meat is. That asset we have of visibility something that doesn't exist in a lot of places. So can, can I pause um, you for a second? Cause you said cool. something that I think some of our listeners will know and not everyone will continuum of care. Yeah. You know, we're all healthcare consumers and you have a healthcare journey that begins when you're born and ends when you die. And when we talk about continuum of care, we mean um, any kind of stop along your entire life, right? Um, you know, birth, any sort of interaction with the hospital system, any sort of post-acute care, long-term care, all the way to hospice care at the end. That gives you the entire journey map of a patient throughout their lifetime and um, allows us to capture the entire picture. Okay. So let's go back. So then you're going into these companies and you're helping to, to identify problems and then looking to see which ones have an arc across the, the continuum of care. Yeah. And we took a really broad approach. So um, in these interviews, you know, many, many hours with many, many subject matter experts, you know, experts in social determinants of health and, and social needs. We talked to case managers, to social workers, um, physicians, nurses, um, all the way up to the C-suite. So we got these challenges and these gaps in current solutions sort of telescoped through the entirety of patients sort of touch points through the system. And so what did, what did you come up with out of that? Yeah, well, it was it's fascinating. A lot of the business challenges that we found are, as you might imagine, in a healthcare system that's complicated, really interconnected. So one of the big ones we found was that there's, there's a need for assessing your social needs. So it may not be obvious in a clinical setting that when you go home, it's to an empty fridge. It may not be obvious that you have some cultural sensitivities um, if you live in a um, skilled nursing facility and you're a woman and you'd prefer not to be undressed by men. Um, but, but these things, because there's not sort of a standardized intake mechanism and understanding of what those sensitivities are for a wide swath of people, that's, that's a real challenge. Um, another example of that is that when we talked to a chief medical officer, said that sometimes during home visits, which he's done hundreds of um, during his career, he felt like the best contribution he made to a patient's care was not part um, of some sort of complicated medical decision making. But instead, what he did was he took this patient's nebulizer, which was in a box on their front doorstep, took it inside, unboxed it and plugged it in. You know, there are all these disconnects in our healthcare system that we're, we're a lot of times aren't catching. In addition to sort of the broad assessment, there's also this consumer engagement problem, right? A lot of times, and I think this is a theme that comes up over and over again, you know, we, we know how to treat diabetes, but we don't necessarily always know how to keep a consumer, a patient engaged in their own healthcare. And, you know, that brings this problem to one that is really familiar with any innovator who's built a user interface. How do you keep your consumer engaged um, and so they can uh, get the benefits they, they need out of that? So one of the things that you saw was that even though people could articulate a business problem that they knew was important, so these social factors that influence health, you saw a data intake problem. Yeah. Can, 
Can you talk a little bit about like what are the components to that? These are these are healthcare companies, right? And so understanding whether someone has access to transportation or food is is not the sort of traditional scope of a healthcare company. And so they're not built to to handle that kind of data collection. And that gets into a lot of what I hope we can talk about later, which is how do we ask the right questions and collect the right data to answer those questions. And it feeds into this whole system that's fascinating in that all of this sort of lack of social need data feeds into a larger challenge, which is really the big overarching one that we found, which is a real difficulty in demonstrating that there is a return on investment for any, um, you know, any way to address these social needs, right? There's not a payment model that makes sense for a lot of them. And um, even if you are able to address something like, for example, social isolation and loneliness, we, we see a lot of examples where the on the provider side, a hospital will have this great technology innovation that the staff loves, patients love. They can demonstrate that it's clinically effective, but a lot of the times they can't demonstrate that they're seeing a financial return on that investment. And that leads to a lot of promising pilots being abandoned. So we see this kind of you know, one year to 18 month churn in startup pilots for these companies. And that's that's really the crux of what we're trying to address with this little uh, initiative that I spend all my time on. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about digital transformation. And, you know, we talk about the use of data within the context of a change management model. So what I hear you saying is, okay, so you've got a business problem, which is that there's all these things that are traditionally exogenous or outside of your institutional health that are really important to your business. Mm. So then you've got a data problem. But even if you solve the data problem, you've got a business use problem or like a, we need to establish first off that this works, but also that it makes business sense. It's a, it's a stakeholder alignment problem. And I forgive me for being too buzzwordy, but we really need to get everyone motivated to, to do the same things. And although every healthcare company is so good at its own job and it's focused and they, they know how to do their business, they know that business inside and out. But when it comes to um, nurturing a patient through that entire continuum of care that we talked about, um, mm-hmm. patients fall through the cracks and transitions and patients aren't getting follow-up on their social needs. And it's just because our system isn't built quite right to handle it. No, I mean, it's funny because the analogy I immediately think of, uh, you know, Brian is some of the manufacturers that we talk to. And, you know, this is in some ways a supply chain problem. You know, I build this perfect thing and then it has to get wrapped in plastic and then it has to get sent to somebody. And the entire experience that the end user has you know, depends on these things that are outside my direct control. So let me posit a theory on that, Ben. Do you think that we have a, we're too uncomfortable with using the term productizing? You know what I mean? Because when we're talking about human, I mean, basically what we're talking about is is treating a human in this process like a product, and that is uncomfortable, and it should be for certain reasons, right? But if we took some of that practicality and applied it here, we might actually find some benefits. So how do we get past kind of the etymology that holds us back, for lack of a better way of explaining it? Well, I mean, I I heard Rebecca say a version of this, and I scribble it frantically. We're great at treating diabetes. We're bad at treating diabetics. 
<laughs> I like your, the, the way you said it much better. <laughs> and I like the supply chain analogy. Um, and, I, you know, we, we fall back on this language that is the, the consumer and it, it does, does, it doesn't quite sit right. Right. It's because our payers, our insurance companies call them members and our providers call them patients. And we've got to try to find some common language to, to, so that everyone knows what we're talking about, but you're right. So it, I want to get it back into the discovery lab. So, so because part of what we're trying to tease out here is for the various people who are at different points in their digital transformation journey. So we, you know, we talk about AI and innovation, but it's really, most of this is well below the level of AI. It's really just kind of understanding data, but can you walk a little bit through, okay, you go in and you highlight these sets of problems and then you're trying to do some data intake that they might not have, or they might have in fits and spurts. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of how they're taking these legacy data systems and trying to do something with them or how you are? It's kind of a complicated question, right? Um, and I'm a, I'm a new observer to this system, but there, there, you know, are, seems to me to be a big separation in the field between your Johns Hopkins and your Cleveland clinics and, um, a lot of the rest of the country. And it's just because of access to resources in terms of integrating and updating those legacy systems that kind of aren't serving all of our needs. And so you get a lot of sort of incremental improvements, um, little modules that get scotch taped together. And then um, it's really hard to untangle that mass and get the plumbing right to get the data sets you need to answer a question in a central place. And that's what, those are the conversations we're having now to really understand the work that's in front of us in order to pull the correct data sets out. And the way we're approaching it is being very specific and very narrow in the data sets that we're requesting from our member companies to solve this problem. Um, and so we're, this isn't a huge dump of data into a big uh, central repository. So can I pause you there? Like, why is it important to be narrow about the data that you're trying to, to innovate on? A lot of different reasons, but one is just the plumbing problem that I was talking about. If we're very specific and we can communicate our needs very clearly, um, that's what puts LHCC in a great position as kind of a neutral third party to be this aggregator of um, collective data. It's also just, you know, it's an easier ask, right? Instead of let's see all of your very um, protected healthcare data, we want to be responsible stewards um, of that data and, and, and make sure that we're um, using it in a way that's one legal. And, and, and I hear that's important. <laughs> it is. And, and, and very, very careful and um, very, we under, understand the importance of, of being good data stewards. So part of what I hear you saying is that as you're crafting this, you're trying to be very intentional from the outset about, okay, we're trying to create an example story. Am I reflecting that back to you? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing is, you know, our, our charge for this year was social determinants of health, which is very, very broad and very, very deep, right? We're talking about infrastructure, institutional problems, um, lots of overarching health inequity issues that um, honestly are are beyond the scope of even LHCC. And so starting with a very narrowly defined problem and um, pulling on very narrowly defined data sets 
really sets up a model that will allow us to answer a lot of other kinds of healthcare challenges in a repeatable way and allow us to sort of slowly expand as we understand a little bit better how these pieces all fit together and the real opportunity and capabilities of that data sharing across the continuum. So we've talked about some of the technical components. Can you talk a little bit about some of the cultural things? I mean, you know, you have talked a couple times about LHCC's biggest asset being these engaged CEOs. This is not an easy thing to do in, inside one company. From a cultural perspective, like what does that look like? Ben, you've met my boss. <laughs> the inimitable uh, Tammy York Day. Inimitable <laughs> is a great word for Tammy yeah. York Day. Uh, she will, um, you know, walk through walls to, to get this done. So that's a really helpful um, tool we have. But plus, these CEOs understand that the health of their business is directly tied to the health of this community. And doing something like this here is monumental, completely novel, and has the opportunity to create this magnetism for Louisville as an epicenter for talent and researchers and students and, and innovators of all types, people who want to drive change in the healthcare system. And that's what, you know, zoom way out. That's what, that's what this is about. If you want to come, uh, if, if you, if you want to have a voice in what our future healthcare system looks like, you got to be here. Right. Okay. So you've got this, you know, what in the, in the sales, you know, if you're trying to sell to corporates and you're a startup, you need your irrational enthusiast. <laughs> so we have our ir irrational enthusiast uh, who is trying to do this and you've got super senior level buy-in, at least in theory. Um, and I, having no corporate background until recently, learned the term executive sponsor. There you so, go. Uh, so we've got our executive sponsors. But like, what does that look like down into the weeds of like the people who actually have to like, yes, you can have this data? Well, um, one thing that's so super important. So since we're gathering this data as um, sort of to measure the impact of an intervention that we're deploying, a technology we're looking at in the communities, we want to make sure that that technology seamlessly integrates into workflows. So we're not causing headaches. Um, we're not causing big disturbances in the way a clinician does her job. This has got to be painless for them. You know, it goes back to that user interface problem again. We've, we need engagement along every node of this supply chain. You know, we've been banging this drum and telling the story and um, I, I, we're, we're getting there. Thank you so much, Rebecca. We'll be right back. This episode of Innovators is brought to you by the Future of Work initiative powered by Microsoft. The Future of Work initiative is dedicated to increasing economic opportunity and equity by enabling Louisville to become a regional hub and center for excellence in artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and data science. If you are a person looking to upskill into the data economy or a company ready to embark on the next step of their digital transformation, learn more at futurelu.com. So I want to flip a little bit over to your story. Okay. So you are obviously not a data uh, tech expert by background. Uh, and part of what we're trying to highlight here is how people get into these interesting spaces in the data economy. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how did you get interested in this sort of stuff? Yeah, uh, my career has been non-traditional to say the least. You know, I, I started talk, talking to you guys about worms um, and that's where, that's where a lot of, um, you know, that was the crucible that, that I popped out of. Um, so I'm comfortable with data in a, in a 
academic research way. But when we talk about big data or AI, it's, it's definitely something different. And Louisville, really, the, 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 how I ended up here, I needed sort of a place to land um, after graduate school. And I've, I'm, I'm from Western Kentucky. I have family here. And um, I thought this was going to be a, a short stopover. But fell into this startup community that I had only had a taste of in graduate school. Um, I sort of tangentially worked on a small molecule that went to a clinical trial. Um, and so I got... But, by the way, a sentence, I... Wait, yeah, wait, 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 wait. I am, in, in, I am taking up my privilege as producer to make you stop and explain that sentence because I really want to know what it means. I was totally going to do that. So good job, team. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm basically a geneticist, a, a molecular biologist, and I worked in a, in a pretty high profile, um, neuro regeneration lab. So, um, they studied spinal cord injury and also neurodegeneration. So Alzheimer's disease and, um, my, um, PI, uh, Steve Stripmutter that the, the, who ran the lab, um, was sort of a world expert on a, on a, on a protein called NOGO and, and NOGO receptor, um, named because when knocked out, they, they cause neurons not to go. <laughs> yeah, so the idea is that if you could prevent this receptor from being activated, you could coax um, neurons to regrow after a spinal cord injury. And so very tangentially, I did some biochemistry on a um, synthetic um, receptor agonist. So it's a, it's a molecule that pretends to bind and activate this receptor. Um, and, um, and I got to see some early stages of a, of a clinical trial and, and got to see that play out. And so um, it was my first real view into this little day-to-day um, grind at my bench, um, how it really translates to helping people and, and getting to the market. And so that was in my mind when I landed in Louisville and um, fell into the startup community here who was just so welcoming and um, excited about new people and, and new faces. And I, I couldn't tear myself away. I started working um, sort of loosely at Accelerate Health, our local healthcare startup accelerator, and really fell in love with startups. I love the challenge. They're, they're really scientists, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're trying to find that product market fit. Their test tube, their Petri dish is the market, and they're trying to understand it um, in a very uh, in in a way that's not unlike the scientific method. So I found it sort of second nature, and 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 absolutely adored it. As someone deeply in the startup community regionally, like I've never heard startups described as scientists, but it's a perfect frame. I mean, you're shooting, you're doing these experiments, and you're trying to craft them, and it is this how do I sell it? And then is it this variable or is it that variable? Is it actually the product or is it the way I'm talking about it? The only difference is, you know, you tell, you tell startup founders to get out of the building, but you really want to tell scientists stay in the building. Don't don't go out of the building. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. All right. So you get involved in startups yeah, and you're working with Accelerate Health. Okay. So, but from there, it's not immediately clear how you would get into this you know, LHCC in general, but particularly some really intense data innovation. Well, there was a stopover. Um, so after Accelerate Health, um, I worked at the University of Louisville, and this will make a lot of sense. It's back to my roots. This is um, uh, an academic grant through the National Institutes of Health that was sort of an experiment itself to see if we could make the University of Louisville a little healthcare product development hub. And so um, 
along with a really excellent team who had done so much of the hard work before I got there, Paula Bates and her team at the University of Louisville. Um, we developed this process that became kind of a pipeline and then a portfolio of University of Louisville technologies um, that would really benefit from little capital infusions. We're talking 150K to really move the needle, to de-risk that technology. So it's more um, interesting to investors, to um, potential um, corporate partners or acquirers. And so that's where I really saw how uh, it, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for me to combine my knowledge of how to design experiments with my love of startups and um, finding that product market fit. But the thing that eluded me there was the corporate customer. And so when I uh, met Tammy and she proposed to me that I would uh, get to learn about an entire, you know, field of corporate entities all at once, I thought, well, this is this is my opportunity. Uh, and that's such an interesting, you know, when you think about innovation, particularly innovation off the coasts, one of the really under leveraged resources that we have is our university system. You know, I think University of Louisville as an R1 university there's so much innovation that's happening, uh, you know, on those campuses and in those departments that, you know, don't really see the light of commercial day because it's hard. And the people who are, as you say, you know, at your bench, you know, actually doing science aren't necessarily the same people as who are out there trying to sell the potential of that science to change people's lives. It's hard to translate that academic science um, into the marketplace, and whoever figures it out is going to be <laughs> home free. Um, just because there's a big there's a big leap there. So you said leap, and that forces me to talk about the uh, healthcare focused part of our regional ecosystem. Leap. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what the the role that LHCC has in the startup to you know, what does Tammy say? Uh, napkin to unicorn. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a, that's a very Tammy phrase there. Um, and we're, you know, we recognize like everyone else that, that, that leap uh, literally is, is hard to make. And, and so um, with corporate input, it, it becomes a little easier. If you have access mm. and insight into corporate challenges, um, it's a lot easier to find that product market fit and to, make sure that you're working on a problem that's a real one and not only a real one, but one that will cause a customer to take out a checkbook and write you a check. And so that's where we see our role in, in leap is really um, building an ecosystem. And um, in the words of the wonderful and beautiful Wendy Lee, um, creating an e ecosystem and creating those conditions where innovators can thrive. And that's where we see, our role, whether it's in um, mentoring sort of middle stage innovators who just need that market insight and um, maybe some capital infusion um, from corporate companies, or um, you know making those connections into into the healthcare uh, companies uh, so they can get their products uh, piloted on the market. Um, that's what we're 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 building. So, can, can you talk a little bit about? And I'm particularly thinking about people who are contemplating a leap into a different career field. You have now a couple times taken what would feel to be a pretty substantial professional risk in jumping from, oh, I'm a you know an established figure in this field, or at least I know what's going on here, 
and here I am in this new universe. Can you just talk a little bit about how you have thought about that and what advice you would give to people who are thinking about something similar? I think you've got to be a little comfortable with culture shock, which is something that's really defined my life. You know, I I grew up in rural Western Kentucky and then went to the East Coast for school and having never really been outside of Kentucky before. And um, so I just sort of got comfortable with being uncomfortable, but it gets easier. Um, And, you know, the biggest the biggest challenge for for me in, in my career was the leap from academic science, really back to the real world. That's that's the time when I, I felt very lost. And one thing that really helped was that I was not alone. Um, one kind of thing that I was really proud out about at, at graduate school, um, I stood up an organization um, called CN Spy. The, the, the acronym isn't great, but um, Career Network for Students and Postdocs at Yale. So this was an organization um, meant to help students and postdocs understand what their career options were mm. in an environment that um, was honestly kind of hostile to any career path that wasn't on the academia train and not intentionally. So just, it's just so insular um, that your other options aren't exactly clear to you. And I actually got, I caught up this timing is, coincidental, but just a couple of weeks ago with the woman who really took over the mantle of that organization after my co-founder and I left. And uh, she has transformed this into something that has uh, incredible reach. And um, it's it's just so cool that I had any hand in, in doing it. And to see that all of these um, researchers who, who have this understanding that bench work is not going to be there forever um, that there are options there. And so I would say find find a network that can help you. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, you have been in pretty male-dominated fields. I think about academic research. I think about, you know, particularly biology. I think about certainly startups. C- can you just talk about what, you know, how you have processed that? Navigating that it takes some skill and, and um it's, it's something you, you sort of get used to. But again, it's that network that you need to find um, and that support system of other women. Yeah, so so important. Um, so where do you see your career going now from, from here? Well, you know, I, I have learned to, to stop making predictions a, a long time ago. Um, but what I know is that I want to keep working on, you know, big hairballs, right? Biology, neuroscience, all of these things are complicated. They're systems that are have a lot of moving parts and a lot of challenging bits. And um, I want to always feel like I'm working on something important and that the work I do is important. But I also, you know, one of our one of our strategic advisors at LHCC, Bill Altman, who leads our innovation committee, told me when he retired, and your listeners can't see that I'm putting retired in quotation marks, um, uh, you know, told me he just wanted to work on interesting things with people who weren't jerks. And I kind of think that is a really good, you know, rudder for, for your career. We like to do something on the show called uh, Flyover Flybys. That's where I take over and ask you random questions that Ben has no jurisdiction over. You've expressed your love for startups, so let's play a game. This is called Startup or Punk Band. These are real names of startups and punk bands, and you have to tell me which is which. Okay. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Bungalow. Startup. Uh, Grad Joy. Startup. 
Dogleg. Punk band. Three for three. Congratulations. You nailed it. Good job. <laughs> that was impressive. So we, I like to end with two big questions. Um, so what excites you most about the coming data revolution? I think it's about, well, it's the opportunity to, to save human lives, really. Um, that sounds like a, like a big pie in the sky answer, but it's, it's the truth. It's, it's removing human error from, from um, diagnostics and, and predictions. So what scares you the most about the coming data revolution? I love this question tickles me I, because my first thought is always like the Terminator Skynet, you know, which <laughs> yes. if you look back at the history of science, you always find people who are really like down on electricity or thought the telephone was like, you know, Henry David Thoreau was like, why does someone in Maine need to talk to someone in Texas? What, what could they possibly have to communicate? You know, <laughs> and, and you know, you kind of would be like Thoreau, go back to, to Walden Pond and contemplate <laughs> solitude. The thing that I think I worry about the most, um, something we touched on a little bit, which is who controls the uh, data for, you know, we've trusted, for example, financial systems with our data and that always didn't um, work in our favor. And so that's, that's really been what I love about what you've incorporated into the future of work is this um, kind of this ethical base and standard and approach that um, really takes into account what it means to be um, a careful steward of data because what happens when um, humans lose agency over those kinds of decisions will be completely reliant on the quality of the data coming in you know the the saying is garbage in garbage out and um, we'll always need people who are literate in um, data to to make sure that to, to be that fail safe so if people want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing, Rebecca, where can they find you? Yeah, check us out at um, lhccinc.com. You'll find links to all of our current initiatives and um, all of our news. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. This is everything I hoped it would be. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. And you can find all you need to know about our host, Ben Reno Weber, and the Future of Work Initiative when you check out futurelu.com or find them on LinkedIn or follow along on Instagram, Future Lou, or on Twitter, Lou Future of Work. I'm Brian Eichenberger. I'm at wearethestoryguys.com. And special thanks to Rebecca Brown Rice, to the Louisville Healthcare CEO Council, and to Fly Over Future. Discover, connect, thrive. Get your daily emails covering everything you need to know about Midwest innovation. That's flyoverfuture.com. And of course, please subscribe and review to this show at Anchor FM, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Thank you for listening. Uh, baggage claim is to your right when you disembark. Please don't run over the people who are uh, not using the moving sidewalk. Thank you. We'll see you on the next flight.